I've said it before, and it's really challenging to make people understand the uh, the meaning of living in the moment, right? Because hearing those words prior to having my experience with psilocybin um, had a very different meaning for me than it does now. It's actually being here and being aware of what's going on in this moment fully. Uh, it's like savoring, uh, you know, the, the perfect bite of dessert. You know, you're, you're there fully and you experience every part of it. Yeah. And if you can live every moment of your life like that, it's really amazing. Hey everyone, welcome to Rupert Radio. I'm your host, Blake Rupert, and this is a doozy of an episode. In it, I talked to Thomas Hartle, the first Canadian to receive legal psychedelic mushrooms in 50 years. He got these mushrooms through an organization based out of Victoria, BC called Theracil in response to their petition of the government to treat his end-of-life anxiety. As you'll hear in this interview, Thomas was psychedelically naive, which is to say he had never done any form of psychedelics or hard drugs prior to this treatment. But when faced with a terminal illness, he did a lot of prep work and research to figure out what treatments showed promise, and struck upon this as the science suggested it was a really promising option. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was pretty far ranging and there's a lot of topics covered. A personal highlight for me was talking about Planck seconds and this notion of digitized time. If that's confusing, don't worry, skip past it. I'm sure you'll get lots from the rest of it. So without further ado, let's dive in. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm here with Thomas Hurdle, and yeah, I'd just love you to take a moment and introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Thomas Hurdle. I am a 52-year-old uh, uh, father of two. I have been married for uh, 26 years. I like to call myself a professional nerd because I mm -hmm. uh, am an IT professional and have been for, uh, oh gosh, probably uh, 25, 26 years now. And uh, I happen to have stage four cancer, which I have been dealing with since uh, 2016 now. This mm -hmm. uh, sort of uh, is where I come from, but, uh, you know, the cancer is definitely not how I define myself. It's just something that I deal with. And as a result of that cancer, um, Thomas, you reached out to the organizers of an organization or the organizers of Theracil here in Victoria. And what happened with that? Yeah. Well, uh, boy, there's a, there's a whole pile of stuff that goes before that, but, uh, mm -hmm. um, I guess maybe we could say my motivation for reaching out to Theracil was, uh, you know, the anxiety that I had as a kind of a byproduct of the cancer and, uh, you know, getting a terminal diagnosis at any stage in your life is likely something that's going to, uh, how do you say, wreck your day. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I discovered uh, anxiety last year in uh, the summer and reached mm. out to uh, Theracil as uh, part of my uh, program for finding uh, psilocybin therapy to help me deal with that anxiety. 
When you say anxiety, do you mind defining that just a little bit to give people a context? Because I think this goes a little bit probably past the, oh, I have an exam tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, for me, the, uh, the anxiety, of course, comes from the cancer, but more specifically from the difficulty that we have in being able to detect my cancer and determine mm. what it's doing and things. So normally when you get cancer, you may get a tumor. They'll pick up that tumor on x-rays or ultrasounds, MRI, CT, something. They have a way of detecting where it is and the extent to how much it is affecting your systems. Um, for myself, my cancer is very difficult to detect. So what I know about it, because they have looked at it surgically, so you know, a surgeon has actually opened me up, taken a look, you know, they, they look around in the different organs and things, and what the surgeon saw when he uh, opened me up was uh, very extensive. So mm-hmm. there are uh, about uh, 52 different locations or so where they look in the abdominal cavity to see uh, if there might be cancer there. And there is cancer in like 41 or 42 of those places in me. Um, tumors of various sizes from you know, uh, pinheads to five millimeters, say. Um, almost none of those tumors actually show up on uh, wow. CTs or PET scans or ultrasound or x-ray or blood work even. So uh, literally almost nothing is visible, but there's so much of it that they can't do anything about it. Wow. So that's kind of where the source of my anxiety comes from. It's not just, you know, the uh, the fear of dying and the unknown. It's the fact that I have literally no idea if there is a tumor that will rupture my intestines this afternoon or whether it will block my intestines tomorrow uh, mm-hmm. or whether or whether I am actually getting improvement and I may last four years. There is nothing that I can do that will tell me that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is the kind of unknown that uh, was causing me anxiety. The, the literal fact that I could be you know, totally fine for, for a number of you know, years. There are people I know who have colon cancer who have survived for really extended periods of time. And, you know, but at the same time, I have also been told by my surgeon that the opposite is true as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where my anxiety comes from. And what does it look like? I mean, obviously, uh, the physical effects of anxiety are very similar for everybody. That's why they mm. can define it as a disease. You know, you rapid heart rate, uh, you know, the, lots of adrenaline, uh, too much inputs. Sometimes you uh, need to be around people. Sometimes you can't be around people. You know, there's a, mm. there's a number of different ways that it will manifest depending on the day. Yeah. But, None of them are nice and none of them are healthy and uh, uh, all of them I could completely live without, if you know what I mean. Yeah, given the option. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
thanks so much for sharing that and really want to recognize the uncertainty that it sounds like is um, impacting your life and just letting you know that that sounds like a lot. And it's been really inspiring to hear about your story before this interview and to hear about the steps that you took after getting this diagnosis and uh, the surgery to go out and figure like figure out what you can do to address it and continue to live and have the impact it seems like you want on the world and your family and everything. Yeah, you know, um, I uh, have always been of the the opinion that uh, one person can make a difference in the world. You know, mm-hmm. it's that, uh, I've mentioned this to other people before, but uh, it's that whole time travel thing, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. always afraid of time travel because they think that, uh, you know, you might go back and some minor thing that you do is going to change the future. Yeah. And yet, here we are and nobody thinks that anything they do will have any impact on the future. Mm. You know, of course it will. <laughs> and uh, I guess in the same way that I have kind of learned that, uh, you know, we are in control of how we feel about things. Mm-hmm. Um, we are also in control of the kind of world that we would like it to be. Yeah, for uh, sure. It, I, it's literally as simple as, you know, uh, live the way you want the world to be. Be the change you wish to see. Yeah. It's no more complicated than that. You know, I, I would mm. like to live in a world where it's uh, okay for people to share things and reach out and, uh, you know, show empathy and compassion and, uh, you know, try to help people where you can. So mm. just do that. <laughs> yeah, well, may that be so. And I hope that yeah. increasingly with the changing tides of the world that these elements are called back in and really encouraged and spread wide because in my own personal life, I'm seeing more and more emphasis on these elements and more and more openness and eagerness on the part of people everywhere to like discover how to do those things in a good way. So absolutely. Let's let's hope it helps. Yeah. You know, I find uh, the more people that I, you know, interact with like this and and talk to, I'm uh, discovering that, you know, if you are willing to have that openness and vulnerability with people, uh, you know, sharing details like we do on podcasts like this. Uh, people have generally been responding very positively when they understand that, you know, it's uh, it's okay to put yourself out there. You know, you uh, when you share pieces of yourself, other people are more willing to share pieces of themselves as well. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if we do more of that, then everybody gets these connections together that you know form communities and Mm. meaningful you know societies totally it uh it starts small like this you know you if you pay attention to uh you know the media and, and things like that um it's not necessarily the media's fault that it has developed into the animal that it has uh, mm. people respond to sensationalism and people respond to, uh, you know, train wrecks and, uh, you know, disasters. But 
<laughs> it's equally possible for people to respond to positive things too. It's a, a matter sure. of training, really. Um, you, you have to feed the wolf you want to uh, to grow, you know. Right now, we have been feeding the wolf of negativity steak, and we have <laughs> been, uh, you know, starving the wolf of kindness pretty badly. Um, it's very easy for the media to point out how different we are. But uh, what I focus my life on is really how the same we are. Um, we have so many things in common. We, we all have people that we care about. We all have families that we have come from. Many of us have families that we're raising. You know, we, we want our communities to be these healthy uh, places. Um, and then we listen to the media that says that, you know, if your neighbor has this sign on their lawn, they're a bad person. <laughs> How silly is that? For sure. Yeah, I'm struck by um, this element of that come so often is paired with psychedelic use, which is the direct exposure to so many of us that uh, of what you're talking about, like the, the decreasing of boundaries between self and other and this mm -hmm. realization that we really are an interconnected uh, series of organisms that are reliance and in some ways, like actually just the same as each other. Absolutely. And yeah, it's, it's an incredibly empowering like notion to recognize that in our sober waking lives, we can electively choose to orient towards this truth or this, mm -hmm. it doesn't even, even if it's not truth, we can just say it's a belief or a possibility. Yeah. And if we do that, it just might be the case that we find more connection, more compassion, more support, more recognition of our own selves. Mm -hmm. all these just beautiful things that like intrinsically seem to have, at least for myself, a ton of value, if not like the most value in life. So yeah. why not maximize for that? I, uh, I would completely agree with you. Um, for my own experience with the uh, psilocybin, um, I found that that an unexpected bonus from that was a, an increase in the amount of empathy that I feel. Mm. Um, the uh i don't know whether uh it is a result of being able to uh you know to, to take a piece of my ego out of the way that was interfering with that or whether it's a matter of uh once you feel this connection to uh more than just yourself it's a, a difficult thing to forget mm. you know uh, if you have, uh, you know, uh, never tasted a particular kind of fruit before, it's impossible to describe, you know, what it is because mm -hmm. you've never experienced it. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like that. You know, you know, what's a, what's a kiwi taste like, right? But uh, once you've actually had the experience, you know, that is now a, a part of you. And, uh, and being a part of you, it, it can't help but affect your life going forwards, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm struck by the physical parallels that I've learned through uh, Buddhist practice of just being aware of my physical sensations. And I'm not quite sure when or how I realized this, but the um, just even noting that there are specific parts of my body that I 
clench or hold tight mm-hmm. and finding times when I'm say in meditation where I notice, Oh, like my shoulder kind of feels weird. And then exploring that and attending to those sensations. And as I continue to breathe and direct breath there, finding that relax and soften and setting to a place that is feels like much more comfortable, mm-hmm. but also highly unfamiliar and being like, yeah. wait, when was the last time I actually just like relaxed into like this easy, beautiful place? Yes. And so yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's the same as tasting a thing I've never tasted before, but certainly there's this sense of like, wow, this has been a possibility the whole time. And yeah, I didn't, I couldn't yeah. even conceive of it, even though it was just on the periphery of my experience. Yeah. Actually, along that same line, I have been doing some uh, exploring along a similar vein myself. Uh, trying to uh, find methods of being able to get rid of, you know, knots and muscles and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, I have so much going on that I try to stay away from extra medications that might just complicate things. Yeah. So I, uh, I have been trying to figure out meditation techniques myself as well. Mm. Um, one of the ones that uh, I have learned is... Uh, well, what I would call ragdoll breathing. Okay. Um, I noticed that um, when you know you're breathing in a regular awake setting, uh, most of the time your breathing tends to be uh, fairly regular and sinusoidal. So the the inhale and the exhale are very similar. Mm-hmm. And what I realized about that is that is something that can actually hide muscle tension because you are controlling sure. muscle rigidity both on the inhale and the exhale. Yeah. And if you've ever watched somebody who is really sleeping, that isn't how they breathe. Um, the actual breathing when you're sleeping, it's a controlled inhale, but the exhale is a relaxation. It's a letting mm. go. Yeah. Why would you use energy in those muscles to exhale when simply relaxing will allow it to happen. Mm. And I have extended that to the point where when I do my relaxing exhale, I now you move my consciousness through my body looking for places that have held tension and have not allowed me to fully exhale. Mm. So it's an inhale a complete relaxation on the exhale and a pause while we look for tension in the body, let it go. And then you can inhale again. So it's a very, very relaxing breathing cycle. Having that pause in there where you neither inhale nor exhale is uh, where the true relaxation actually happens. Beautiful. And how did you arrive at that series of steps? I realized that when I was trying to relax in my meditation, I was still able to sit upright. And, you know, when you're relaxing in bed, that should not be possible to do if you are actually relaxed. Now, this 
This part is going to uh, strike you as a little unusual, but um, what made me realize that I wasn't really relaxing. Uh, I have uh, recently had some parents pass away hmm. uh, in in our uh, our home, actually, and uh, um, in in finding them after they had passed, you you realize that. Uh, Death is a really relaxed state. <laughs> and uh, you, you will find someone who has passed in positions that are non-natural. Mm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the realization that that was the case made me understand that I was holding tension in me that I was mm. not actually letting go. Because if I actually let it go, then I would flop over. Yeah. And it was a matter of being able to actually relax to the point where you fall over. Yeah. And um, practicing that in positions where you won't actually fall over, you know, uh, lying down and such. But uh, in practicing that particular technique, I have been able to get into much, much deeper levels of relaxation. Mm. It seems like, uh, um, what are they called? The sensory deprivation tanks would be a wonderful place for that experiment. Hmm. I, I would have to think so, yeah. Yeah, there would be uh, a, a lot less to deal with in terms with uh, sensations that you need to kind of let go of. For sure. You're literally floating in a, like equilibrium of just relax like relaxness inducing substrate yes yes so this particular type of uh, meditation and relaxing is exactly what i do when i mm. am taking my psilocybin um, mm -hmm. so when i uh, have mentioned in other interviews that uh, i was meditating after i had taken my dose of that uh, this is actually the type of medication meditation that i am doing uh, while i'm waiting for the psilocybin to uh, take effect yeah. So for me, that was, I don't know about you, um, if you have had experiences with it or not, but being um, that self-contained in my own space when the psilocybin uh, sets in is much better for me as a transition state. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I definitely have done psilocybin before and find that um, a meditation practice is it feels like the raft that I have so diligently like attended to or familiarized myself with that when the high tides arrive, I can uh, ride them with some level of equanimity and the ability to like stay level headed and calm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for myself, the psilocybin while it is in effect is uh, amazingly effective at being able to uh, relax me and, and uh, get rid of those knots and hiding tension and mm -hmm. and uh, the physical elements that I would associate with anxiety. For sure. Probably where I struggle with the most. Um, mm. You know, the, the mental parts of it, largely I, I can function. Uh, so long as I haven't, uh, you know, had to use... Uh, 
too much uh, cannabis oil, for example. Do mm. uh, you use cannabis oil uh, on a daily basis dealing with uh, the chemotherapy side effects and then just the daily nausea that stage four colon cancer gives you? But yeah. uh, most of the time, what I need to, uh, to manage that is, uh, you know, still leaves me very functional. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people assume that if you, uh, you know, take cannabis or if you take a psychoactive substance that, you know, automatically you are out of commission and, you know, you are not functional. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I don't know if you have noticed, but I feel fairly functional today. <laughs> I uh, I don't think that uh, anybody would really accuse me of not being in control of my faculties or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I am definitely using cannabis right now. Mm. Uh, But you don't necessarily have to be out of your gourd to manage your symptoms, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a variety of stages that we can enter um, where there's different degrees of yeah, impairment, if you want to call it that. But yeah. also, I just want to take a moment to speak to the uh, influence of propaganda and prohibition in this idea of like, if you do something like LSD, you're going to go crazy for either your whole life or for the duration of the trip. And yeah. in my own experience, and as somebody who's r- run through for a variety of highly like effective professional circles, the use of psychedelics is very, very common by people who are functioning at the top of their game. And it's definitely, there definitely is the possibility of, like you said, getting out of your gourd, but at the same time, there are ways of using it as a supplement, as a medicine, as a tuning fork to Mm -hmm. like focus. Yeah. Yeah. I like the tuning fork idea. It, uh, you know, for uh, for lack of a pun, it uh, it does ring correct for me. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, a pretty decent analogy for how it feels. For sure, so, uh, you know, life gradually kind of accumulates and uh, and gets you out of tune. Yeah, and uh, using the psilocybin as part of a, a therapy feels like a way of just kind of bringing things back into focus. You know, yeah, for sure. Clear. I love that idea of like, yeah, like you said, just being dragged off to the side or whatever, and then being like, boom, you're like, wait a second. Oh, yeah. Loving compassion, purpose, creating values, seizing the day. These are the mm-hmm. things that are so true. Why was I worrying about which pair of socks to wear? Like, yeah. that doesn't matter. Yeah. Hey, you know, it's. <sighs> I've said it before, and it's really challenging to make people understand the uh, the meaning of living in the moment, right? Because hearing those words prior to having my experience with psilocybin um, had a very different meaning for me than it does now. Mm. You know, uh, living in the moment for me right now is really a very literal thing. You know. Um, Living in the moment means that I'm not just here talking to you. I'm also conscious of my weight in this chair 
the mm. warmth of this cup of tea, the aroma coming off of it, the flavor, you know, mm -hmm. uh, being aware of the expressions on your face and, and the body language that it expresses. You know, it, it's, it's actually being here and being aware of what's going on in this moment fully. Uh, it's like savoring, uh, you know, the, the perfect bite of dessert. You know, you're, you're there fully and you experience every part of it. Yeah. And if you can live every moment of your life like that, it's really amazing. Oh, man. I'm so, so excited to hear you say that because that's something I fully subscribe to as well. And yeah, it's just one of those things that I think is borderline trite or cliche because since I was a kid, I've heard people say something like this, some paltry poetic imitation of this, of like live in the moment. But then when you mm -hmm. actually do it and like, or even if it's just for moments, recognize that it's a one obtainable, it's not mythical. It's like literally you can just focus on your breath and then yeah. like, no, like you said, attend to the sensation of your clothes or your body or whatever. Yeah. And when you do that, it's like, whoa, okay, I'm lucid. I'm here. I'm awake. Wow. This is a lot. This is beautiful. And yeah, yeah. It, to, to me, that's what like enlightenment is. It's this just notion of like really being alive to the, to the moment. Yeah. Uh, that is really sort of, um, hmm. comes around to, uh, you know, one of the, the things that I have kind of had an aha about is, you know, the, the why we're here, you know, mm -hmm. why else would we be here except to have these experiences, whatever they happen to be, you know, and, and we are going to experience things that are wonderful and we are going to experience things that are, Know, painful and terrible mm -hmm. what a lot of people don't really like to acknowledge is that you can't have one without the other you For know sure. if all you ever ate was your favorite ice cream <laughs> you very very quickly no longer care for ice cream and if all you ever experienced in life was joy and happiness you know how you ever appreciate it, right? Yeah. So, I've heard this uh, analogy of if you take your, the most beautiful note in the world and you find it on a piano and you just keep hitting that key, after <laughs> after a couple of minutes, it's going to get pretty annoying. Ding, ding, ding. Exactly so. Yeah. You know, um, I think uh might have been Alan Watts. I uh, I was listening to one of his lectures, and I'm sure that is one of the things that he talks about is – you know, this, uh, the duality of things you can't have, you know, light without the dark, the two don't mm -hmm. exist without each other. You can't have happiness without the sadness. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that the depth to which you are willing to feel and accept and embrace these negative things that affect your life then the greater you will be able to experience the joy and happiness that you will have as a result of having dealt with that or worked your way through it. So eh, getting a diagnosis of cancer, right? Sucks. Not a whole lot good about it. But at the same time, by 
I can either be uh, poor me and sit around, you know, being upset, wishing things were different, waiting to die. Mm. Or you can accept that what is going to happen is completely out of my control, you know, and, and I will qualify that and say that there is an awful lot that you can do with uh, affecting your reality with your thoughts. I, I do genuinely believe that, but, you know, I'm not under any illusions that I am immortal. Sooner or later, uh, you know, we're all going to have to deal with, with death. Some of us sooner than others. And by uh, being able to accept that through the help of psilocybin therapy, because that has definitely made a huge uh, difference in my ability to do so, mm. um, I, I feel like I'm now able to, to grab a hold of those things in life that were being suppressed because of the anxiety and the negative thinking. Mm. Make sense? Yeah, it really does. And I guess I'm curious to hear how much, um, how much of this awareness that you had, like I'm, I'm hearing the or the psilocybin therapy had a transformative effect in some, some way. And I'm curious if there were seeds of this before your journey. And um, maybe if you could just elaborate as well as what your uh, stance was towards the use of recreational substances or these medicines uh, prior to your <laughs> diagnosis. For sure. Um, you know, prior to uh, 2016, when I got my initial diagnosis, um, I was not a recreational drug user at all. Uh, you know, occasional drinker, you know, socially and things like that. But uh, in terms of uh, taking a psychedelic substance like LSD or MDMA or mushrooms or anything in that family mm -hmm. was right outside of my, not only my comfort zone, but wasn't even a consideration for me. You know, it would be like, why the hell would I need that? <laughs> you know, um, I was very much um, indoctrinated into the information that had been available my whole life, which was, you know, a picture Ronald Reagan saying, you know, anybody who uses a psychedelic is a loser and there's no reason for it, you know. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, not uh, not judgmental against anybody who chooses to do that, because I have always considered that, uh, you know, your body is yours and, you know, what you do with it is none of my business. You know, if uh, if you use a bunch of alcohol and hop into a car, well, you know, that's a different story. But if uh, if you want to uh, do a bunch of drugs and uh, see what that's like. That is totally not up to me to tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. So I kind of applied the same open-mindedness to, uh, to myself. When um, I was looking for anything that will help you deal with cancer. And I absolutely guarantee that uh, if you get a cancer diagnosis and you are somebody like me, you will scour 
whatever resources are available to try to find something that might have an impact to uh, to help you along the mm -hmm. way. So I have done tons of research on a place called PubMed. It's a place where a lot of medical journals uh, get published for research and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, your doctor goes there to look at what's new. You can go there too, you know. Uh, just like me, you can read through the big words and, and figure stuff out and you can educate yourself on all of the information that is available to your doctor and you can go and you can have these meaningful discussions with them about sure. this. And uh, my own doctor was not uh, familiar enough with uh, psychedelics as a therapy tool. So that uh, prompted me to find um, Dr. Tobin at Theracil, who was experienced with it. So there are a lot of cases where doctors out there are not necessarily opposed to using uh, psychedelics in therapy, but they're not necessarily educated enough to have an opinion on the subject. And mm -hmm. I think that's where, you know, people like us can sort of uh, assist with that process. Because, you know, somebody like me, I am about as plain as white bread. I, I like to say it often because it's true. You know? there, there is literally nothing special or weird about me. I'm, a, I'm an IT guy who's 52 and, you know, I, I live with a white fence in my backyard in a garden, you know. If I can open my mind to the possibility that maybe there are some therapeutic benefits to this substance, then I think it makes it accessible to other people as well. You know, I sure. am not some long haired hippie who's, uh, you know, <laughs> wearing beads and uh, wanting to uh, spike the water supply with LSD. Yeah. You know, sure. I, I, I really have had a benefit using this as a therapeutic tool. Um, you know, could I totally see this being uh, something that people use recreationally? I, I suppose, but uh, not something that feels recreational to me in, mm. in the same way that uh, medical cannabis doesn't feel recreational to me either. You know, I, I know people who uh, consume a lot of medical cannabis just because they really enjoy it. You know, they find it uh, relaxing and they want to... Uh, veg out or zone out or whatever the case is but the same is true for you know cocaine or for you know any of the prescription painkillers for sleep aids any yeah. of these things have the exact same potential for people to use them in unintended ways it's especially if there's a lack of education and if there's a stigma that suppresses the education of what these even are. I have, I know so many people who are prescribed uh, barbiturates and opiates and all mm -hmm. these different things that are numbing agents and suppressants that led to crippling addictions to pharmaceuticals. And literally like this was facilitated because they were, it was like a doctor prescribed it to them, told mm -hmm. them this was like a happy pill or whatever. And then yeah. there wasn't a discourse or a dialogue in society in which it was even possible to talk about the dangers of um, these things 
because no, they came from a doctor, so they had to be safe. And yet there's this major field of thought that says that like somehow magic mushrooms are uh, dangerous for you. They have one of the lowest toxicity profiles of like any substance we know on earth. Like, yeah. Come on. Literally, um, more water could kill you than the same amount of psilocybin. Yeah. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, it's, I don't know. I, I'm very happy that we're starting to open the doors on this a little bit. Um, there are things that, uh, psilocybin does that aren't really even advertised. Okay. So yes, it's a a psychedelic substance. Yes. It can profoundly change your, uh, your outlook on, you know, crippling anxiety and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, uh, interestingly, I'm also somebody who occasionally suffers from migraines. And since I started chemotherapy, uh, I get Mm. a, uh, regularly scheduled migraine every second Friday. It's just the way chemotherapy works. But I happened to have a migraine the day I did my last um, psilocybin therapy session. And I was very uh, delighted to discover that the psilocybin got rid of my headache in exactly the same way and the same effectiveness as my prescription zomatriptan did. Wow. So for me, I, I know there's definitely a component of the migraines that in, involves uh, muscle spasms in the head and neck and stuff. Um, there seems, in my experience, to be some sort of a connection between those uh, serotonin uptake receptors and uh, muscle rigidity and spasm. Hmm. So I think that sort of looks like a connection that I think would be useful for some doctor out there to explore because um, if, if we can uh, if we can nail down that connection between those five uh, HT receptors and this muscle rigidity and migraine, then we might be able to more effectively have a uh, a treatment for something like migraines that does not have the same side effects. Yeah, the side effects actually include just like being healthier, happier, and like mentally more agile. <laughs> side effects may include a sense of well-being, <laughs> empathy for your fellow man. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. like that. Yeah, that's a that's a big industry <laughs> to cure migraines. I just want to pause here and reflect a little bit on my ADHD and go back to something we we're saying a moment ago about practitioners and the availability of uh, people who are educated about. Uh, these medicines as medicines and oh, yeah. to give a little little shout out to what happened yesterday as maybe do you want to break the news well i uh i have heard that therosil has now got approval for using psilocybin for training their new uh, therapists so that is extremely exciting news yeah so now you are going to be able to get therapy from somebody who actually has experience and knowledge on how the substance helps you. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible that the Canadian government has seen the wisdom and looked at the science and um, yeah, and they're ultimately given permission and encouragement to these practitioners, uh, doctors, therapists, physicians to consume psilocybin themselves and receive therapy so that they can then turn around and embody their own learnings and approach the uh, the process with like a sense of knowing and yeah, yeah i mean 
we're starting to see the tides really turn and the glaciers slide. Yeah. Now, I, I would like to uh, just point out, you know, the crazy thought that giving the therapist the ability to experience the the states of consciousness that they are going to be assisting with to me has a, a feeling of a bit of the shamanic to it hmm. and it is uh, you know perhaps an acknowledgement that um mental health has a component to it that is more than just physical there is this spiritual element to it that isn't religious in any particular way or any particular denomination, but it is definitely a, a spiritual connection with ourselves and, and with the world that we live in. Mm. And recognizing that that spiritual connection is a part of our mental well-being, I think, is a really solid step forward. Yeah, beautiful. I'd love to talk more about spirituality in a moment. And just before I do the it's occurring to me, um, this beautiful, I'm not quite sure what it would be, but I, I guess a teaching that a friend offered. Um, mm -hmm. We're at a at an event and a group of us sat down to perform a little ceremony of which is a fancy way of just saying like, it's the, the tuning fork thing. Again, it's mm -hmm. just a getting into uh, the set in, yeah exactly just a ritualized invitation to like arrive in the moment and to really be aware of whatever's going on for oneself and then to direct your intentions and towards what you want to accomplish or what you're hoping to invite in mm -hmm. uh, just a little note here from the experiences i've had i would encourage anyone who's setting an intention or first off you should definitely tune in and set an intention before a trip and also don't cling to an outcome. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I would... <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that is something I, that I, I am going to echo you on this one because I have had a chance to talk to uh, a lot of people who have had experiences with different types of psychedelics. And that is yeah. probably one of the biggest things that I will totally agree with you. Uh, and one yeah. of the things that I would say was most helpful for me um, you know, it's important to set something that you would like to get out of it. For sure. An you openness. Know, set, set something that, boy, this would be good to have. But, you know, if you want to have, uh, <laughs> you know, a feeling of connectedness and what you really need to deal with is oh my gosh. You know, some traumatic childhood thing, that's what you're going to deal with. And, and that's yeah. what's going to be, you know, presented. You have to recognize that, you know, in the same, the same things that come up in your consciousness in your day to day life. So the same stuff that you worry about, you know, uh, you know, uh, the same traumas that affect you on a day to day basis. Just because you take a psychedelic, that yeah. isn't different. The only thing that's different is your ego that gets in the way of you dealing with some of this stuff or that makes you deny that you have a problem or that, you know, I'm, I can handle this and just ignore it. Yeah. All of those things that your ego does. Well, now your ego is out of the way. And these things that, you know, you haven't been able to address and deal with, you now have the opportunity to actually get right at these things without 
the denial and and whatever else is preventing you from getting there. Yeah, which is an amazing opportunity if you're willing to and capable of meeting it. And depending on the setting that you're in and depending on maybe your own resourcefulness or your preparedness, that may not be the case. But yeah. should you be able to and willing to, it's a, yeah, I've found incredible value. Um, and yeah, just to be very clear, once again, if you want to feel connection and love and peace and you're hell, hell bent on that, you're probably going to feel a lot of separation and disruption and fear. So uh, be mindful of how you set your intentions. Yeah, yeah. You, you really have to be willing to embrace whatever shows up. Totally. Because Number one rule. <laughs> it, uh, now, you, you uh, may have a difference of opinion on, from this than I do, but um, what I have sort of come to the conclusion of is that some of these difficult uh, sessions is actually a desirable outcome. Because if you have what they call a, a difficult session, that is actually an indicator that you have arrived at something that you need to deal with or something that you are having difficulty with. Now, that isn't to say that you have no choice but to deal with that and move past it. I, I think the uh, because this is an internal process, I think that you have opportunities to deal with different things. You know, if, if, if you, uh, you know, were in a traumatic accident or, you know, if you witnessed something that was terrible and, and you just aren't quite ready to deal with that, but you've got something else to deal with, then I think you have opportunities to deal with things as you are ready. And that's why a lot of people, I think, get some success from more than one uh, session with a psychedelic. I mean, mm. you wouldn't go to a therapist and have, you know, one therapy session and say, we're good. You know, that would be ridiculous. Yeah. I believe the same is true when you are using uh, psychedelics as a tool. You know, they are really effective and yeah. they are most certainly good at helping you get to things that you have trouble getting to. But I think it would be silly to think that you're going to, you know, one and done. I mean, life's not yeah, like for, for sure. I mean, that certainly is a possibility. And I think a lot of people have that experience and even the potential, mm -hmm. if there's like a 20% chance that people can have a one and done session, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the same time, like Rick Doblin and Maps USA has really found that with the MDMA therapy they're doing for PTSD, um, Again, it's like it seems to be the 15 to 20 percent of people get that one and done session. Mm -hmm. But then there's like, I think, 60 or 70 percent of their participants who experience significant uh, therapeutic outcomes are yeah. getting it on the second session. And yes. initially their studies were um, three sessions. And I think moving forward, they're going to recommend it constrained to two because yeah, like you said, after the first one, the first one's more of that introductory people get familiar, mm -hmm. which when you're going to do something that's really intense, probably not a bad idea to titrate it or to do titrate is this idea of introducing in smaller increments. Yep. So you can familiarize, like you wouldn't just dive in the deepest end of a water if it was your first time yep. trying to swim. So unless you had like a excellent lifeguard beside you, yep. but with MDMA, like, yeah, so many people 
have that first session, figure out what it's like, build the trust. They're like, okay, I kind of know what's going on. And then mm -hmm. they're able to go into the second one and be like, I am here, let it happen. Uh, yeah. Let's go for it. I think the more you are able to get to that position that you described that, you know, I'm here and whatever happens is exactly what's supposed to happen. And whatever I happen to be feeling is correct and right. The sooner you can get there, um, I, I think the better you will get uh, a benefit from it. For sure. I uh, use that analogy of that revolving door. I don't know whether you've heard it or not, but, uh, mm. you know, uh, when you uh, take a psychedelic substance, uh, that is a lot like one of those automatic revolving doors, you know, going into a hotel. Taking so a psychedelic fun. is like stepping into that door. Mm. So you've got, you know, three choices, basically. You know, if you stand there and, and you don't have an intention, the door will give you an intention. <laughs> That's great. It's probably not going to be the one you want, but you will get one. You know, if you are prepared and you walk through the door, mm. then chances are you're going to have a better experience. You know, mm -hmm. and uh, the more experienced you are, the, the more your third option is to be actually pushing on the door and inviting the experience, you know? Mm. But don't be the guy who's standing around. You don't want that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I'm going to steal that metaphor from you. <laughs> it's true, though. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense to me. Um, yeah, going back to the a tangent that I shot off there, I had a friend once who offered me a teaching um, as we entered this, as we were setting our intentions and grounding in, where they asked us to reflect on the possibility as we held um, the cumenses, the psychedelic mushrooms in our hands, that these were organisms that um, transcend our notions of intelligence and of what it is to be a conscious being. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who doesn't know, and I'm not sure how much you've looked into this, Thomas, but um, I've only recently learned about what mycelium or mushrooms um, mycelium being the organism that produces mushrooms, mushrooms being like the apple to the tree, they're the fruiting yep. body. Um, it's only been in the last four or five years where I've really realized like the craziness of what mycelium are. My current understanding is that there is more like species of mycelium than there are plants and animals combined because mycelium yep. is its own kingdom. Yes. And we can combine that with the fact that mycelium literally do so many of the processes of the natural world that make it possible for life to exist. They break mm -hmm. down rocks and inert biomass to turn it into soil and nutrients. They are responsible for cultivating and maintaining microbe populations. Um, they, yeah, they just do the, literally it's an endless spectrum of responsibilities they take on for keeping the world alive and healthy and thriving. Oh yeah, And then we can look at asteroids and asteroids, meteorites. What are the ones that go through the atmosphere? Meteorites, uh, they're I guess? meteorites, I think, when they hit the ground. Yeah, uh, okay. Meteors when they're in the air, meteorite when they hit the ground, I think. Gotcha. So we can look at these um, meteor meteors, meteorites, and asteroids and find mycelium in the rock. And keep in mind, mycelium is alive. It's a growing. It's an organism. It and is. what we find is that it exists. It's one of the few things we know that lives in space, in a vacuum, in 
like crazy temperatures. And so all of a sudden there's this realization that mycelium travels through space, can land on a planet kind of like seeds blown from a dandelion. And it has the capacity of terraforming, of breaking, like of setting the initial stage and then cultivating life. And so it's like, huh, like, and I wonder if evolves, evolves from it. We yeah. are evolved from it. Like mycelium literally, yeah, literally creates life and, yes. and maintains it. Like they're the ones who run forests. They're the ones who like, yeah, it's the, again, the spectrum is so wide that it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to wrap your mind around because they literally are responsible. It seems for most things that we consider mm -hmm. life. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. So if I'm holding this mushroom, that's going to pop open this door of consciousness and shunt me into this completely like, for lack of a better word, altered reality. Mm -hmm. What are the possibilities that that is an invitation by another form, like another organism, another conscious being entity that has volition, that has desires, that has dreams and preferences and all these things. And it's literally like inviting me into a, a completely radical new way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. And so the, the teaching from this friend was as we ingest these beings, consider them beings and spirits and not simply um, just like, I don't know. I don't know what people just might like consider food them. or something. Yeah, exactly. But like, even I think food even has similar context, but the, the, point that he really illustrated was like it's inappropriate to to imagine this as nothing as a oh, thing yeah. that has no consequence it's not just simply some gray pulp that you're doing an action to and then go on with your day it's like no like this has its own life its own desires its own it is a being so mm -hmm. as you ingest it as you mesh yourself with it um the invitation he offered was literally just to reflect on like what you might be um, inviting into your, into your life and into your world. Yeah. It, uh, boy, there's a, there's a whole lot of levels to that. And uh, there's a whole lot of different branches where that can go. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, the idea of, uh, you know, the mushrooms being this, uh, consciousness is, uh, I think, uh, along the lines of some things that I've heard, uh, Terrence McKenna and, uh, Dennis talking about. And, uh, you know, I definitely, uh, would agree with the idea that that is a consciousness. And I would take it probably one step a little bit further than that um for me i see uh, the universe as being something that is very uh fractal in design and when i say that um you know think of things like the uh, the fibonacci spiral so it's a very simple structure that is a repeating pattern that increases in its size, you know, as you uh, progress. Um, same could be said for the, uh, the Mandelbrot set, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, a fractal. I see the same 
concepts of these repeating patterns in reality as I do in things like mathematics and energy and, and light and consciousness. Um, they're, they're all literally the same to me and they can be treated in similar ways. So from a, a physical reality point of view, we have systems where we start off with simple small things which are then assembled into larger things which become increasingly complex. So you start off with, you know, quarks. Quarks make, you know, uh, protons, neutrons, subatomic particles, which form atoms, which form molecules, which form things. So at each stage of that, you're looking at something that is an increasing complexity that is made of smaller, simpler components, right? I believe that consciousness has a similar sort of a structure to it. So I guess uh, for my perspective, um, hmm, I think that the fundamental stuff that the universe would be created out of is actually consciousness or the potential for it, I think would be more accurate. How is that different than saying that whatever the universe is created from is um, as a constituent element of that material or whatever we want to call it has mm -hmm. the potential for consciousness? So not really so much of a difference between what is a consciousness and what is a physical material. So the physical material would be constructed and exists because a consciousness says it exists. So uh, let's let's go to something like the uh, the double slit experiment. Are you familiar with that at all? I am for sure. And maybe just as a quick primer, we can say to people, a uh, bunch of physicists sent light rays through slits, and they found that the that at sometimes the light rays were waves, and sometimes mm -hmm. they were What's the alternative? I can I can do that for you if you want. Yeah, go for it. I got a, I got a good uh, good handle on that one. So, if you have um, a wave on a pool of water, and you pass that wave through a single slit, what you get on the other side of that is this concentric ring pattern of the waves passing through. So you get a half of a circle of concentric rings when a wave passes through a single slit. When you have two slits and you pass a wave through that, you get two concentric circles of ripples from those two slits. And those ripples will interfere with each other. When mm -hmm. the interfering ripples strike a uh, destination or a screen, you will see um, a pattern of the the interference on that which would be a series of bands now that series of bands tells you that whatever came through those two slits was a wave because it produced waves after it and you are seeing a wave pattern now if you take uh, say something like a, a BB gun 
and you shoot a single BB through a single slit, uh, you will get pretty much what you expect. So you go from there through a slit to your target. All your stuff is basically in line with that slit. Mm -hmm. Now, when you take two slits and you fire BBs through those, then you expect to get two patterns. Now, this is where we start to get weirdness happening. And this is where consciousness comes into the equation. So what they actually found is if they fire single photons through a single slit, it gets the pattern that you expect. Now, if you fire a single photon at a time through two slits, you would expect that to perform just like BBs do, and you get two areas. But if you are only looking at the screen, what actually happens is those single photons will assemble themselves into that interference pattern that you see with a wave. Now, you will get that wave pattern until you actually pay attention to which one of those two slits the photon went through. And as soon as you observe it, then it turns into a particle. Yeah. So where my thinking of consciousness being matter comes into effect is exactly this. Um, our reality, according to quantum physics, is more of a potential. Uh, it's probability-based, uh, which is part of the stuff that Tom Campbell uh, is, is talks about. And I, I differ from Tom a, a little bit on some of our opinions on uh, some of the other details, but uh, where we do agree is the idea that what is actually real is consciousness and the physical stuff as crazy as it sounds, actually happens as a result of consciousness paying attention to it. Mm -hmm. Now, this is true for a single photon. This is also true for this coffee cup. There is literally no difference between a single photon <laughs> spontaneously occurring because yeah. it was observed and this coffee cup existing because they are made out of the same stuff mm -hmm. and so am i and so are you literally none of us actually exist as a physical entity except consciousness makes it so yeah except when observed <laughs> <laughs> now who is actually doing the observing well i would have to think that in this particular instance for my experience I have only my own experience, so I am mm -hmm. the observer in this particular sure. instance. Now, if I am the observer that is responsible for my particular reality, and it can't be any other way, then why can we not influence our own reality in ways that are positive? Because I guarantee you can affect them in ways that are negative, and people do it every day. <laughs> yep, that's, that's certainly true. So the practical sort of takeaway I'm hearing from this is the notion that reality to some extent is subjective mm -hmm. and one's ability to orient their attention and their um, 
literally just like the spotlight of what they're noticing and paying paying awareness to mm-hmm. can help influence what elements um appear or solidified in their waking life yes you can literally affect to a certain extent the probability of things happening in reality there's a wonderful uh psychology experiment that demonstrates this where the researchers uh had participants come into their lab and they had asked them to fill out a test beforehand that measured a bunch of different personality traits similar to what i understand you did prior to your first session and one of the measures that they had them fill out was a self rating of um luck hmm. and what they then did was once they had filled the test there was a bunch of other questions to distract them but really what they were looking at was how lucky the people thought they were and then afterwards the people went and they looked at a newspaper and they were told to read the whole newspaper and mm-hmm. to remember some trivial facts about it like they were instructed to like note how many times the blah 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 blah, blah. But really sure. the the assignment they were given was just a decoy. What was actually the test was I think on the like fifth or fourth or fifth page out of like 12 there was a box in the shape of an ad that said um if you read this stop reading the newspaper, go to your uh research researcher and tell them you found this box and we'll give you $50. Hmm. And those who did it got $50. And what they found was that with almost perfect precision the people who had self-rated as having low luck low luck low luck that's a good tongue twister low yeah luck. <laughs> they um were they didn't find this box they read to the very end of the paper which was laborious and boring and time consuming and there was no point but they, yeah. that was what they were doing and that's what they were told to do whereas the people mm-hmm. who had self-rated high being luck found that got paid for it and got out of the experiment like in half the time or whatever. Yeah. Boy, I've got an interesting thought on that that just occurred to me while you were talking and I don't want to interrupt your story. Yeah, no go for it. That's it. <clears throat> well, we were talking earlier about the uh, the idea of being present in the moment. Mhm. And I will uh, posit to you that perhaps people who live more in the moment and are more positive generally consider themselves more lucky and there is a possibility that as a result of being more present they mm-hmm. actually read the paper as opposed to the people who just went through the motions and were not present yeah for sure i mean what i've i think that it's going to be one of the taglines for this um the podcast that i've started and it's comes to me through the buddhist tradition but one of the intentions of buddhism is to foster or promote awareness mm-hmm. and to increase our degrees of freedom to respond in intentional and like with ways of skill to the reality that we exist in and so that's something in my own practice over the last however many years that i've certainly seen evidence and that's not to say that somehow i've been given magic powers or that I'm mm-hmm. operating cool. at some incredible level but it definitely seems like there is a correlation of increasingly becoming aware of my own experience mm-hmm. of the reality that I participate in and the 
many ways to which I could orient my behavior so as to achieve the outcomes that I deem to be skillful. Yep. Yep. I, I think that would be fair. Um, I, I think I would also say that I, in my experience, have found that we really live in a world that contains abundance. Um, people have this, uh, the idea of manifesting. I'm sure you've probably heard of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of critics of the idea of manifesting, you know, say that, well, you know, not everybody can have everything. And my experience has been, is that the world that we live in and our reality is some very abundant in every way and both directions. So in the yes. same way that you can't have happiness without sadness, you know, you, you have extreme opportunities for lots of good things and lots of bad things to happen. And you will tend to find the things that you expect to find. So uh, I know people who are negative and down and they expect to find problems and boy, they do. Mm. It's like everything goes wrong for them. You know, if they need a parking spot, it's definitely the one at the far end of the mall. You know, if, if they uh, are in a hurry, there's definitely a lineup at the cash out there. Yeah. And those are the things that they recognize. Now, did that person encounter anything differently in their day from me? And I will almost guarantee <laughs> that there is no, because yeah. I could be standing right beside them. And my experience will be completely different because my expectation is to find good and positive things in the world. And I tend to find those. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the reasons why I consider myself to be so incredibly lucky. I have the, the expectation that generally speaking, good things will happen. And I know how stupid that sounds coming from somebody who has stage four cancer, right? But I have to tell you that in spite of all of the negative things that the cancer has done to me physically, um, I have learned so many incredible lessons mm. from this. And if a person is, you know, open to find the valuable in these adversities that we encounter yeah. in life, you will find that you are rewarded so very much for leaning into adversity and leaning mm. into pain. Uh, yeah. I hear a lot of wisdom in that. And I just want to take a moment to appreciate that sentiment. And the, what I hear is the ability to choose one's, um, response or orientation towards objective reality. And that, that ultimately is a huge profound, uh, factor in deciding one's experience. It and is. I also just want to offer some gentle pushback to something I heard you say, sure. which was that the two people who move through the world could have more or less exactly the same, like objective, like just based on factual experiences yes. and that the main differentiator will be their relationship to those events. Yes. And I, I want to say that I personally agree with the fact that our 
personal relationship with facts is of massive importance and is a huge factor. But I also want to make space for the fact that there are objectively different factors that people uh, encounter and that I don't want to put the responsibility solely on one's either willingness or ability to shape their reaction or relationship to those facts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's inappropriate to, personally for myself, as um, a white male born in middle-class family in Canada, I'm aware that there's a huge amount of privilege and opportunities that are baked into the objective facts of my everyday life. And Mm -hmm. this was illustrated to me when somebody asked me to consider, like, if I walk into a room in the body I currently have, how is my experience physically different and contextually different than mm-hmm. if a woman who is four foot five and Filipino walks into that same room, like how many factors are going to change? And so I just want to open the space to the, to what I think is important to acknowledge that there are structural objective differences that have dramatic um, implications on what one might experience. And so. Yep. Um, yeah. I cannot disagree with any part of that. Um, what I will add to that is uh, two four-foot Filipino women can have the same experience, and that experience can be different based on uh, of attitudes and acceptance. But in, in terms of the other part of that, you are a hundred percent right. Uh, you know, growing up, I was not a subject to child abuse. I have, you know, not been hassled by you know law enforcement or the military or anything like that so Mm -hmm. in terms of uh you know life i think my experience is on easy mode compared to you know even uh you know my son who is going through the same life experience with autism Mm. you know uh where it's very simple and easy for me to uh comprehend things like a budget or shopping for groceries these are real life challenges for some people and Mm -hmm. uh, they are going to struggle with stuff that doesn't even enter my wheelhouse so yes of course good to acknowledge that yeah for sure and i guess our i think your hope as well but my hope certainly would be that we can encourage all peoples of all um or like orientations and backgrounds to recognize that there is a degree of moduality there is a degree of influence that they can exert over their life if mm-hmm. if only to recognize that they can choose whether or not to dwell in the frustrations or um, emotions that they experience that are displeasurable versus to acknowledge them and see them without resistance and to actually meet them with compassion and acceptance and then yep. perhaps in doing so recognize a lightness and freedom that comes with just being authentically present. You know, it's uh, that uh, expression, you know, making the uh, the best of a situation has a lot to do with life, right? Um, mm. You, uh, It's entirely possible that your life circumstance is just a big steaming turd, but you make the best of what you can learn from that experience, I think, is probably the best that you can do in some circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, not everybody gets to 
to be born with a silver spoon and not everybody gets to have things easy but everybody has the opportunity for how much they are able to grow from whatever they've been given for sure i i guess now would be a good time to ask um yeah what you've learned from the hand you've been dealt I have learned an awful lot more about patience. Um, for one, I have learned a lot more about allowing yourself to be vulnerable and open um, as a way of connecting to people. Because prior to that, um, I had a lot of trouble really making those two-way connections with people. I think it has also made me a lot more aware of how we are a part of a larger system on this planet that, uh, as you say, with something like mycelium, mycelium is a far larger and older organism than any of us are it's a reasonable assumption to to say that it's possible this planet is actually theirs and we are just one of the subsystems that they have developed in order to perform a particular task in the same way that you know we might design a remote control robot to go into a hazardous site and uh, you know put away that plutonium for us or ants in an anthill yeah very much like that um it's a um an extension of what i started talking about there with uh, with the fractalization of the universe um so if we look at the way that uh, what we perceive as matter is being built up from more elementary things it isn't so much of a stretch to assume that it's possible that consciousness is also a result of being assembled from more elementary things. Mm. So let's say that uh, a piece of consciousness represents a single thought, single simplest thought that is possible. Yeah. And a collection of those simple thoughts may be enough what I would call computing power to produce a more complex thought. Or it may take a certain combination of simple thoughts to produce this kind of more complex thought, which then leads to more and more complex things. Mm -hmm. It may take a certain level of conscious complexity to make a proton. It takes a much larger amount of conscious capacity to make an ant. And uh, in the same way that this conscious complexity increases, you wind up with something like us. Well, think about consciousness on the complexity level of the planet, right? We are mm -hmm. like this single cell in this larger organism, which has a life that is completely separate from us. 
So we are completely unaware of the entirety of the Earth as a functioning organism in the same way that you have no idea what one of your pancreas cells is doing. <laughs> it's so interesting yeah. to me that so many, um, so many different like first peoples or those who live in connection with the land um, for generations have had a sense of this and through their yeah. teachings and their oral histories, like speak to this in yeah. explicit language. It seems like a no brainer that we are an organism that is arguably intelligent, that has the capacity to do these very sweeping things to help the planet. But we are serving ourselves instead of it. So instead of working towards increasing biodiversity and life and trying to uh, promote the growth of things, we are somehow convinced that we must consume and make money and yeah. produce, you know, uh, it's insanity. And I, I don't know, I don't, since having my psilocybin, it's a lot easier for me to understand the ridiculousness of <laughs> what we're doing. The absurdity. Yeah. It, it's, it's silly. So, okay. You're, you're born. And what do you do? Well, you go to school and you get an education. Why do you get that? So you can get a job. Well, why do you get a job? So you can get a house and stuff, you know. Um, but why do you have to do that way? You know, why could you not do exactly what generations of people have done? You know, you're, you're born and now you start looking after your world, you know. Mm -hmm. you, you help to uh, foster life. You play. What's wrong with that? It seems to me that what we're currently doing seems to be kind of killing off large portions of the planet. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's time we did something different, you know? Whoa, whoa. Thomas, you're getting radical? This is <laughs> so a little you, far out. <laughs> going to get your uh, podcast banned here. Uh <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's interesting too that your journey coincides more or less with the timeline of uh, COVID and how this seems to be really an invitation for people to really tune in and reflect about the direction of society and our species. Yeah. Well, I think Timothy O'Leary had it right in so far as the tune in part. Um, I think it would be really great if a lot of people had, you know, the time and education to be able to do this mindfulness that um, you know I have had this opportunity to do yeah. outside of the psilocybin and such uh, dealing with the uh, the anxiety prior to psilocybin involved a lot of meditation for me and a lot of mindfulness and a lot of uh, the techniques that they use to try to, to help mm -hmm. Uh, people deal with anxiety but yeah. a byproduct of that can very well be this understanding that you know we are a part of something and uh, if more people are aware of that then i think it can't be a bad thing uh, especially if they're aware that it's not only a responsibility but also a source of great 
uh, joy and connection and purpose and meaning. And mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but when I'm aware and like consciously involved with these things, I'm like, ah, oh, it just feels so good. It's like a warm bath. Well, that's again, that, uh, being present, it has a lot to do with this. Um, you know, for people who are present, even for a little while, um, I have found that that novelty, I guess you could call it, of experience. So experiencing new things is very revitalizing. Totally. Energizing. You know, if um, uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza is somebody that I've been reading a, a little bit recently. Uh, he's a, the author of uh, stuff like um, Evolve Your Brain or uh, How to Break the Habit of Being Yourself. So he talks a lot of, in his work about our ability to use our consciousness to affect us physically. He uh, broke his back very badly in a uh, triathlon accident. And he was able to uh, heal himself without surgery by, uh, you know, conscious intention. I don't think that, uh, you know, that is an easy thing to do. But if one person can learn how to do that, then other people can also learn how to do that. It's like when the first person ran the four-minute mile, right? Prior to that, doctors said that it was a uh, physical impossibility. Couldn't do it. And as soon as one person actually did it, that sort of changed the paradigm. So now Mm. this isn't an impossibility. It's just difficult. I think the same is true for a lot of, you know, uh, things that people consider miracles or spontaneous healings or, or things like that. Um, do I uh, necessarily think that I can just think about it and cure my cancer? I don't think I have that kind of horsepower, honestly. But mm-hmm. I have to tell you that I believe that my attitude and beliefs certainly has a positive effect on my ability to heal mm-hmm. and uh, maintain my cancer in uh, sort of a, the state that it's in. So uh, last week, for example, um, I guess I haven't told you anything about my uh, my cancer and, and stuff, except for it's very difficult to detect. Yes. So what we can see is uh, two tumors out of the at least 40-some that I'm aware of. Two of them show up on uh, CT scan. And uh, I have been monitoring those since they found them in 2016. So... 2016, uh, those two tumors, one of them started off at uh, 35 millimeters. And uh, the other one started off at 24. So um, over the course of this past year, the uh, 30, 30 some millimeter one, I have managed to shrink that one down to eight. And the one that was uh, 24 millimeters, I shrank that down to nine. Last week, I had a CT scan. The, uh, the eight millimeter was stable, and the nine millimeter is no longer visible on the CT scan. That's incredible. So um, 
yeah, I, I, I tend to think that what I'm doing must be at least working for me so far. Mm. And I, I really hope that, uh, it continues to help and that you continue to find the healing and the states of being that you aspire to. Yeah. Well, you know, I believe that it helps having, you know, been able to accept and embrace what's going on. Um, it seems in a lot of situations that it makes things worse when you fight against stuff. You know, mm. you ever try to fight anxiety? You ever try to fight depression? Yeah, it totally works. Instant cure. Yeah. How about fighting pain? Does that work? Yeah. <laughs> fighting anger? Mm. You know, everybody thinks it's you have to struggle against all of this stuff. Yeah. When what seems to be better is, you know, acceptance and embracing. Yeah. Not that doesn't mean focusing on it, you know. Um, so, you know, if, if I've got some abdominal discomfort on a particular day, I find that if I'm thinking about it, that's where my consciousness goes. Yeah. My consciousness exists in that pain. And if your consciousness exists in pain, well, what do you think you're going to be experiencing? You're going to be experiencing pain. Mm -hmm. If you are able to, to whatever extent you're capable of, embrace the discomfort and mm -hmm. put your consciousness somewhere else, then that pain becomes much easier to deal with. So rather than having all of your consciousness focused on who pain, this hurts, you know, what's going on. If I'm able to say, hmm, well, yeah, that's not comfortable and I don't like it, but, um, you know, I have other things that I would like to accomplish and focus on today. You know, mm -hmm. I would like to focus on like this podcast that I'm doing. For example, if I can have my presence here and, on the content and topics that we're talking about, I am not thinking about the discomfort. So my consciousness doesn't have to be there if I don't want it to be there. For sure. And I definitely see that manifested in my own life in probably mm. uh, not as urgent settings, um, but this notion of directing your focus onto things that you would uh, prefer and that engage your sensory mm. apparatus and your cognitive processes so that they can, um, perhaps not run idle and be sucked into this unpleasant mm. thing. I also yeah. just want to suggest that from in my own practice, what I'm discovering is the possibility that, um, and increasingly so though, it's a difficult task that there's a lot to gain by acknowledging sensations that arise that are unpleasant or that I don't like. And I, mm -hmm. I just want to take a moment to clarify that uh, what I was taught was that there is no such thing as a good or a bad feeling in yes. the Buddhist terminology. We simply refer to them as excitements. So we have levels of excitement. Um, so fear can be e exhibited in different degrees of mm -hmm. excitement, but so can joy or sadness and it's agnostic or it doesn't matter whether or not it's something that feels good or not. You can then observe those levels of excitement and say like, Oh, I notice that I really have this preference for it, or I really have this aversion and yep. that's fine to do, but just avoiding the temptation of this is a bad feeling in and of itself. Yes. And when I know when I'm able to notice that I'm having sensations that are quite strong, 
or even threatening. Like there's that like red flaring siren going off in my peripherals. That's like constantly berating me. If I'm able to notice that and then attend to like, like drop in, tune in and be like, Oh, what am I experiencing? Mm -hmm. Okay. That blaring sirens going off. I really don't enjoy that. And if I'm able to practice that awareness with compassion and acceptance and even just to say like, okay, like this is what's happening right now. I'm aware that I really don't want it to happen and that's okay. It's okay that it's happening. It's okay that I don't want it to. I'm just Mm going to like notice it without the need of changing it. And then at some point, maybe I recognize, okay, this isn't serving me. This is actually my capacity at this moment perhaps is such that I'm so uncomfortable in this moment that I'm not able to function or show up as I would like. Mm -hmm. And then recognizing, wow, I really want to shift my focus or do some other thing. Just be like, oh, that's okay too. (laughs) And okay, I'm going to take on this new task because there's a huge sense of relief and of um, control and power and empowerment and all these things. And wow, I really enjoy that. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. okay too. And not to say that that's right or that I should be doing that, but simply just to be noticing it with the same form of awareness and compassion. And I find that as I do that more and more, and I'm still just a beginner at it, that um, my craving and my aversion, so both my clinging to something for something to be different than it already is and to really want to obtain new states, as well as the notion that, oh, I can't exist in this place, they're leveling out and I'm reaching a more like stable, (laughs) like internal attitude. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Um, hmm. I've had a few thoughts on, uh, well, a number of different topics in there. Um, I have sort of come to the conclusion that a lot of what we have in this existence is, you know, for the purpose of having experiences and, and, particular lessons that we need to get from those experiences. So uh, I've noticed a lot of people seem to, I I wouldn't want to necessarily put it, make the same mistakes repeatedly, but they certainly seem to encounter the same challenges repeatedly. Mm. And from my perspective, that appears like, a lesson repeating itself Mm -hmm. because there's something about the first time you experienced that, that you missed because if you didn't miss it, it would be physically impossible for you to have the same experience again. Mm. Right? So if you keep having this relationship with the same type of person that never works, you've never learned from the first relationship those things which don't work for you. Um, In the same way that I think that there is uh, a purpose to uh, things like anger. Yeah. Why, Why would we need to get angry at stuff? And from my perspective, I think it sort of has two purposes. 
Uh, one is to show us the places where we are weak. And it is also, I think, to show us the uh, places where our desires for the world to be different conflict with our ability to accept things as they are. Mm, well said. Just uh, my random thought of the day a couple of days ago. <laughs> For sure. And yeah, I think I'm hearing in that this acknowledgement and appreciation that sensations are in and of themselves valuable as signals and that we need not fear or um, decide some are less valuable than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, well, all these are kind of pieces of my uh, bigger idea on the purpose of the universe, which I still haven't covered yet. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we can jump into that. And I'd love to combine that with uh, what your spiritual practice is looking like in these recent days. Yeah, I don't know. It, uh, I don't know if it goes with any other uh, religious thoughts or teachings, but uh, my thought process on why we're here um, came down to the idea of... Uh, well, I guess for lack of better terminology, how do you build a better God? And I will use, uh, you know, the term God, not as, you know, the, the bearded dude in the clouds, <laughs> uh, more, more of a uh, global universal consciousness mm. concept. Let's, uh, let's use that as uh, just a, a handy word to describe some consciousness that is all that there is. Okay. I guess would be my, my starting point. So let's say that uh, you are God and you are all that there is. And uh, as a consciousness, you already contain every thought that is possible to have, every uh, experience that it has been possible to have. You are literally everything. How is it possible for you to ever grow and become more than what you are. And for my thinking, the uh, only real way of doing that would be to break yourself into incomplete pieces, which then seek to become complete in whatever way they happen to be broken. Mm -hmm. And in my universe, that would be represented by these individual units of consciousness so if uh, if you are not the all then yeah. by definition you are an incomplete part which is seeking to become complete and i think that these broken pieces are not enough to become a whole thing by themselves but then form i guess for uh convenient visualizations, uh, communities in the same way that, uh, you know, protons and neutrons form communities mm -hmm. to make atoms and those yeah. form communities to make molecules. The, uh, the cells of your body form a community that is you. And I believe that there are individual units of consciousness that assemble as a cooperative community to form a you and the life experience of being you produces a byproduct 
which is your consciousness, which is something separate from those consciousnesses that make you. And I think one of my uh, thoughts from my psilocybin experience on why the idea of death is so ridiculous is because what makes you in my current iteration of my understanding, you are actually the desired output of what is required to make these broken consciousnesses whole in some mm -hmm. way. I don't believe that one lifetime is anywhere near what is required to, to become complete in, in any meaningful way, but you will become complete in some way. And your life experience then becomes a part of the completion of these other consciousnesses, which then can go on to, uh, after you die, uh, potentially become a part of somebody else's consciousness, or mm. maybe it becomes a part of a rock or a part of a tree. But the experience, which is you, as an energetic occurrence in the universe, has no end, literally. You literally can't die because you are experience. So, so for me, all of these parts, it's uh, what I would call the uh, shattered God theory. And you, your experience, and I, my experience, are literally the new material that is created that fills the cracks in the completion of the universe. Mm. And it has grown as a result. Beautiful. I'm uh, yeah, struck by a lot of elements of that and struck by this, the combination of hope and humility that I see in the recognizing of the infinitesimal and the, the mm. atomic parts that combine to create something bigger than themselves. And then also this notion of um, recycling and of carrying forward uh, learnings and experience mm -hmm. and everything that's baked into that. I'm well, curious. Here's, uh, here, here's oh, a yeah. part where it's, I'm, I'm going to just interject this before you ask a question. For sure. Uh, because part of where this comes from and why would I think this kind of a crazy idea? Um, I would direct you to the consciousnesses and entities that people encounter when they use uh, psychedelic substances. Uh, for example, the uh, machine elves. Hmm. A lot of people um, who would assume that those actually are a thing as opposed to just a, a you know a short circuit in your brain uh, if we assume that those are actual conscious entities and we understand that we are interdimensional beings because we are energetic uh, beings there's uh, quantum mechanics says so it doesn't matter what school you come from or what religion you come from we are energetic beings I considered it a possibility that psychedelics, by taking the ego out of the way, the ego being specifically that thing which separates me from not me. So if we take the, the filter out of the way, we suddenly have access to these other 
entities and consciousnesses like the machine elves like uh some people encounter a, a, the Gaia spirit. There's a, a number of these different entities that people seem to encounter. Do you mind just uh, describing what the machine elves are? Sure. Um, a, a good example I will take uh, from the Joe Rogan podcast and his uh, description of the experience that he had with uh, DMT. What he describes is uh, encountering these entities who had uh, you know, physical physical bodies and things like that, and uh, they were mocking him. And uh, what he realized from their mocking behavior is that he was taking himself too seriously and that you know, he really needed to kind of check himself. And as soon as he acknowledged that that was something that he needed to... Uh, to fix about his personality, then these entities gave him kind of a, a confirmation and acceptance that, you know, yeah, you got this, you know, what, what that looks like in my perspective is this community of entities that makes you by definition are looking for you to have the most success and the best, most productive experiences that you can have because the quality of those experiences also helps them in the completion of their journey. You, as a consciousness, are kind of like their child. So when people talk about experiencing these feelings of love and stuff in the presence of these entities, it really, really makes sense if these entities are what makes you, of course they love you and want what's best for you because that is you. And you are a part of this bigger thing. You know, it's, uh, they, uh, it would make sense if they feel the same way about you as you would about your child. You want the best, but mm -hmm. sometimes they screw up and they don't always go the directions that you want them to. So I think uh, one of the things that we could get out of a, a psychedelic experience on the spiritual level is this connection to these guiding forces that are trying to help us learn the lessons that we need to learn out of this particular lifetime. Because sometimes mm -hmm. the ego is enough of a good filter that it actually gets in the way of us trying to figure out some of this important stuff. And psychedelics, by taking that ego out of the way, I think gives us a little more direct access to these consciousnesses that are trying to provide lessons for us. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yeah, There's I mean, the crazy thing. Cool. Well, yeah, the Shattered God theory that's, is a whole bunch of implications. I'm curious um, if you're familiar with uh, the, I think it's, it's a short story called the egg by andy weir i have seen that it's yeah. good yeah for yeah, sure it sounds like a it really thought-provoking piece wasn't it totally and i would recommend anyone listening to this to go and check it out it's one of the best short stories i've ever read andy it weir is. would go on to write the martian of um matt damon fame oh cool. uh, but long before have you seen the martian or read the book oh yeah both oh yeah i was gonna say it's right up your alley um 
but yeah, the, I think the egg was one of the first like chain mail emails that like got around on the internet and holy cow, it's thought provoking. And it, it embodies, yeah. I think a lot of the elements you're talking about this notion of uh, rebirth or of taking elements of past lives and adding them mm-hmm. together to create a larger um, entity. Um, yeah. I'm just taking a moment to digest all the, the nuances of that. I'm, I, I have to say for myself that the notion of a purpose, there being somehow a purpose to the universe or to um, different organisms is something that I feel really excited about and really like hopeful for. Mm -hmm. And I'm also not totally sure where that would come from or why there needs to be what in philosophy we call a theological um, phenomenon. So this notion of like it moving in a particular direction or there being a purpose. Um, yeah. And I'm just, I'm, I'm open into that being the case. I'm also yeah. just hoping to reflect my like curiosity about, about whether or not that is, is true. Yeah. It, uh, it ties in fairly solidly with the, uh, the ideas of, uh, evolution and, uh, um, increasing complexity and order over entropy. Um, I am a computer person, so I You look I am, pretty... Re- I mean, I, I know we're doing this on Zoom, but you look... I thought you were real. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Virtual reality. Um, I uh, Being an IT guy, I, I do some programming and I'm familiar with, uh, uh, artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, this universe really greatly resembles an artificial intelligence system. Yep. Um, and I will, I will qualify that. Um, my ideas of time and reality are quite a bit different from the way that most people consider time and reality. So uh, I, I think of our universe as being pixelated. Now, uh, I would call it pixelated because we have specific limitations of the universe, like the, uh, the Planck constant, which is uh, the mathematically provable smallest possible thing we can have in our universe. Mm-hmm. So if our universe has the possibility of a smallest limitation that is by definition pixelated in the same way that, you know, uh, pixelation is, is when you uh, look at like a digital photograph, right? You zoom in, the blocks get bigger and eventually there's yeah. a limit to what you can see. Yeah. So our, our universe is pixelated in terms of size. It's pixelated in terms of time. So there's a minimum time slice that something can happen within. Hmm. So we have these two physical limiting boundaries. Now, uh, what does that mean in terms of physics? Well, the, if you look at the minimum distance that something can travel in the minimum time, that is a speed limit. Do we have speed limits in our universe? Why? Well, yes, we do. The speed of yeah. light. So, so we've got these provable things to say that our universe is definitely uh, pixelated in a digital way. So what does that mean? Well, if time has a minimum time slice, that means that time literally actually ticks in our universe. 
Yeah. In, so, in increments that are discernible and measurable and predictable. Yes, exactly so. So if you take the knowledge that our universe has these slices and you translate that into something like uh, the quantum realm, mm -hmm. you realize that our universe kind of flickers in and out of existence every one of these Planck seconds. And the universe that exists in, let's call it a second after, is the universe that occurs because it has the highest probability of happening mm. according to what happened in the previous second. I just want to check in here. So because we are, if we think of it like a feature of digitization is this notion, like you say, of pixelization, but I've also heard you can think of it like uh, if you take a dial and some dials are analog in which you spin them and they yep. spin continuously versus there are those that have the like clicks. one, two, yeah, clicks, exactly. And so between the first click and the second click, I heard you describe this as a flicker. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's this notion that from one state change to the second, there is no intermediary in the sense that it's it's a binary. It's you're in one and then you're in the second. Yes. And so somewhere in in that shifting in that on that threshold between the two, there is a probability um, driven state change of the resulting like of state two. Yes. Cool. So so what happens within that one plank second. So here's where my universe gets a little weird for most people. Um, are you familiar at all with how you program an artificial intelligence? And I'll give you a Reader's Digest version if, uh, if you're not. Uh, might might um, help the viewers. So you take... I, I, I just got to chime in here to say that um, everything you're talking about right now, this is actually what my... At university and my undergrad, this is what was my project. And my final paper was about this notion of digitization versus um, analog or continuous functions. And I literally responded to like, it's incredible to hear you talk about these things because I, <laughs> I wrote about this extensively and submitted it in response to some of the theories of people like Alan Turing uh, that talked about the notion of a universal Turing machine and how if you could, if you could theoretically come up <laughs> with a way of digitizing everything then it would be ultimately programmable. And then there was a whole bunch of philosophers for many years who tried to figure out what things could be digitized and what couldn't be. And ultimately the answer I gave was like what I'm hearing from you, though yours may have some elements that um, are very useful, like the notion of a Planck second. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm super enthralled by this. <laughs> So, uh, oh, that's that's cool. I'll be very interested here where you go with uh, with your ideas once I uh, give you my crazy thoughts. Uh, so, when you are programming an artificial reality or uh, artificial intelligence, uh, and there's tons of YouTube videos where you could look up um, how they do this. Um, let's say we're using um, teaching a stick figure how to walk as an example. Okay, so. Um, the stick figure has a number of inputs that it will accept, like, you know, uh, move this leg, move, flex this joint, 
whatever uh, whatever parameters are required to make this stick figure move in any way. Um, and the result of whatever these inputs do is judged against a desired outcome. So mm. if you want the stick figure to move farther in that direction, um, and your first go around, you drop 10,000 of these stick figures into your room and you send random inputs to all of them. The one that did the thing that was closest to what you want is the one that you then use as the seed for the next 10,000. So you start with the one that did the best and you repeat the process over and over and over and over, you know, 10,000 stick figures at a time, picking the best one out of the generation to move to the next generation. And over the course of generations, eventually the stick figure is able to walk. Mm. Now, where I apply this to, uh, to my thought process is we are the stick figures. And each one of those generations that happens is actually a slice of this plank time. Mm -hmm. So in that slice of plank time, everything that is possible to happen actually happens in a fractal mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. So all, all different paths and branches are explored. Yeah. Anything that is possible to happen in that plank second actually happens. Mm -hmm. And our consciousness is only experiencing the most probable thing that happened in the next second. So our consciousness is only exploring one of a literally infinite number of possibilities. Mm -hmm. And I believe that it is likely, very likely, that our consciousness could take other paths through that in other times, um, totally different life experiences without the requirement of multiple universes or multiple dimensions or anything like that. It is literally a homogenous thing that contains everything that's possible. And our whole life experience is like this little ice cream scoop out of it. So you've mm. got, uh, you know, I have a, a Thomas shaped ice cream scoop and my experience is that ice cream scoop, which is scooped out of the time slices that are available to me. And my consciousness is that one single path through that probability of time mm. slice. So one path, um, the actual path that your life could take, you know, would look more like lightning, you know, it's potentially yeah. forked in many directions. And mm -hmm. all of those are very completely valid life paths that you could take. None of them require an extra universe to, to accomplish that. None of them, you know, require anything fancy in physics. This is just happens to be what you have received as the most optimal path based on the previous second. Mm -hmm. And the decisions and thoughts that you make affect your path through that. Yeah, I guess the question for me would then be, what is the scoring function that is 
guiding. Um, mm -hmm. Exactly. And that is where the idea of my fractured God comes into play. Mm -hmm. Because you have a, a community of consciousnesses that are trying to become complete in some way. Now, maybe the way that they are incomplete is they need to experience more trauma in childhood or something, you know, maybe, uh, maybe that particular kind of pain is something that, uh, you know, or like myself, you know, maybe uh, mm. the uh, cancer experience is something that a number of those consciousnesses that make me have never experienced. Mm. And, and for me, the experience of working through that and embracing that and growing from it, as opposed to being broken by it, mm -hmm. I think is the way that I can become more complete as uh, consciousness. So the scoring, as you say, is that which becomes closer to achieving completion in some way. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with uh, Rene Descartes? Only in a cursory way. Fair enough. I mean, the I story think of where I am. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, the person who first wrote this, and yeah, I mean, the story of how he arrived at that conclusion and the process he took to, like, what his project was was to investigate every assumption and to. Um, really try and arrive at some level of base truth, something that wasn't the result of teaching or of um, opinions, but like it's just something that is ultimately a ground floor of reality. And through a long drawn out experience where he literally locked himself at the top of a tower, um, <laughs> he arrived at this axiom, this principle, essential element of reality, which is I think, and therefore I am because I am thinking and I can't, even if I was being deceived of who is doing the thinking, like there is something that is having the experience of thinking. Therefore yep. I am. And something that's been always odd is that his follow-up to that was that there must be a God and there must be a God influencing this. And what's was interesting for me as with engaging with these original texts is seeing how, fervently and rigorously he avoided introducing other elements um, or, or appealing to other elements that he couldn't prove himself. And at the end he reached this bedrock and then saw fit to incorporate a divine element. And I, what was odd was that there wasn't a reason not to, I'm oh, sorry, there wasn't a reason to do it or not to do it, at least by my humble estimation, Mm -hmm. But he he had ultimate conviction in it. And so I'm just noting here like this notion of external forces and of a theological purpose and of this guiding force towards completeness and complexity and seeing how it resembles a lot of that journey as of what I see of Descartes as well. And mm -hmm. I wonder, I, I mean, honestly, what just strikes me is the fractal repeating nature of this. And seeing how across time, um, yeah, a similar process seems to be uh, unfolding in someone such as yourself, a modern philosopher. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know, this, this fractal nature of reality seems to be one of those things that is so simple yet looks really obvious, you know? Yeah. It's, it's literally everywhere and yet it doesn't really a seem mathematical to proof. Really, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it's something that we don't seem to really take, uh, in, into account this, mm. uh, this idea of, uh, AI and evolution and the, uh, the fractal nature of stuff kind of all mushes together for me. Um, mm. me too. In, in, um, so for me, uh, when you look at this Gaia concept, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, we are evolving ourselves as uh, conscious entities, but we are also part of a larger system, which I believe is also in the process of evolving itself, you mm -hmm. know, in terms of a planetary level. And I don't really think that there is any reasonable way to say that this is not also taking place on larger scales in For sure. ways that we are completely you know unaware of in the same way that we are unaware of an atom of you know hydrogen in our bloodstream yeah. or like you said a cell in our pancreas yeah exactly so you know there there are these large systems out there which are in the process of evolving in exactly the same sort of ways as we are. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that this is a thing that's happening and the acknowledgement can help us to actively participate in this process. Mm -hmm. If that's what we are supposed to be doing is to be heading towards these directions, then why wouldn't we do that actively and help the process? Mm -hmm. I guess for myself, some questions I would have would be whether or not the process of evolution really is an increasing uh, linear progression of complexity. And w when I say that, I think about how like I used to think mushrooms were literally these weird things from pop the ground that were nothing. And now I'm recognizing that if you go back, if there's evidence that seems to suggest that going back in time that my brain can't even comprehend mycelium has existed and exerted will and made decisions. And so yep. I wonder if there's a level of anthro anthropomorphism or putting humans at the center of the world and assuming that because we exist, we are the top tier of evolution or in some ways, even more in any way, more complex than what came before us. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of like the mass die-offs that have occurred on earth and that how we're in the point now, thanks fossil fuel of like another great global um, extinction event, mm -hmm. which means that like the background level of extinction is like the rate at which species are going extinct is over a thousand times higher than what it should be. Yes. And if we look back through those different periods, I'd be curious to see if there's any reason to suppose that the organisms that exist on earth or in the galaxy today are more complex, more complex, however you score that mm -hmm. than those that occurred previously. I uh, I would say that the complexity most certainly increases. Um, one of the other things that having cancer has given me is a bit of a perspective on uh, organisms and resource allocation and things of mm. that nature. So, um, so let's take a look at how my cancer works, for example. 
Um, I have got a group of cells in my body which are not working towards the benefit of my body in general, but they are very good at consuming resources and multiplying. Um, so essentially they are completely uh, self-serving and they will multiply as fast as they can consuming all of the resources that they can for their own benefit regardless of what happens industrious so, buggers yes and, and that's what my cancer does so let's take a look at what we do as people on this planet so we assume that we are the most important thing on this planet and the planet is here for our own enjoyment and use and mm -hmm. we consume everything that we touch as opposed to everything else that works in cooperation with each other. Even on the plains on the, you know, savanna where you've got lions and gazelles and, you know, uh, predators and prey and, and things like that. You're looking at a system that works cooperatively, right? The lions never go and kill all of the gazelles. They only take the ones that they need. Humans will go and kill all of the gazelles because we feel like it. If you consider us to be a part of the larger system in the same way that, uh, you know, the cells in my body are a part of the larger system, I have most of my cells working as a community that are trying to make me prosper and succeed. Mm -hmm. Most of the organisms on the earth are working towards this state of homeostasis in the planet, wanting it to grow and succeed. Mm -hmm. We are acting like a disease. It is really not surprising that the earth as an organic system is responding to us in ways that will get rid <laughs> of that which is killing it. I don't see how this is surprising to anybody. In the exact same way you see this reflected in our social systems. Mm -hmm. We have given the rights of a human to corporations. So a yeah. corporation <laughs> has, has all of the rights of a human being, but none of the things that make us human. For example, corporations are immortal. It doesn't matter who starts a corporation. It will outlive them in the same way the cancer will outlive, you know, the normal cells in your body. Mm. Corporations, by their very nature, are designed to try to consume as many resources and grow as big as possible. Their goal is to produce dividends for shareholders. That's the Hashtag purpose. capitalism. That's <laughs> yeah. li literally the game. I mean, it's, it's the design of the system is to consume everything. Yeah. That is, I it, mean, it was, it was premised on a notion of infinite resources. And if yeah. you go back and read literature, like even in the Bible, they talk about the oceans being literally a boundless source of food or, yeah. and like in the Odyssey and throughout history, humans literally conceptually were so small and insignificant that they could not mm -hmm. perceive of, extracting more than they than there was yes 
exactly that. You know, and, and when you've only got, you know, a couple of million people on the whole planet, it yeah. can look infinite, right? Yeah, for sure. The same way as, you know, if, if I've only got three or four cancer cells, probably not going to notice what's going on with that. Mm. But when you, when you allow something to become dominant in your system, so in my case, cancer, in our society's case, we have allowed corporations to consume all the resources as, as a, as a biological entity, we've allowed ourselves to, uh, to then trash significant parts of the planet. Mm -hmm. I think the sooner that we figure out that, you know, what we're doing is, uh, is killing ourselves. Maybe we can think about, uh, building communities instead of focusing on our differences. Mm. In the, uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, it's an old parable. It takes a community to raise a child. Well, um, I think we, I have a community of consciousnesses trying to raise me. I think mm. that we as a community of consciousnesses could be trying to raise our planet. It's, uh, my, uh, one of my crazy thoughts. I, I think that, uh, our purpose is to help each other. We're mm. all trying to get through this, you know? Yeah. I deeply appreciate and respect, uh, that that's your, uh, the possibilities that you invite into your awareness. And I really admire that and hope that for myself, I can continue to orient towards that as being, um, something to strive for and enculturate and develop. And yeah, I, I give a huge shout out and appreciation to all the people that I've met who seem to be carrying that fire as well and hoping to spread it um, so that it creates, a, a, I guess, a pyre to burn the um, current states of things that are limiting uh, freedom and expression and connection. <laughs> I have this beautiful uh, idea that was introduced to me of uh, composting. And how when things are dying or decaying, they can be recycled through compost to give rise to new life. And I hear a lot of a lot of the tools for that in what you're speaking to. So thanks, Thomas. It's a neat idea. And that concept of a, a compost, everybody looks at compost and, and sees a pile of dead things. <laughs> it's actually a pile of life. Yeah, more life per cubic meter, like measurably so. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things I've gotten out of my uh, psilocybin experience is getting my mindset out of this idea of mm. uh, life and death, beginnings and ends. Um, I'm more focused on transitions now. So it's transitions of states where nothing is actually destroyed. Nothing begins or ends. It's just different. Mm. And being able to... Uh, Accept and embrace those differences makes coping with a lot of life's challenges so much easier too. For sure. Especially if you approach them with curiosity, you're like, ah, oh, what is this gate that I passed through? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there are definitely spots where curiosity will get you through uh, an awful lot in life. You know, not, not mm. curiosity like what happens if I stick a fork into this socket, but... <laughs> If you're trying to explore it and see where this experience will take you, then a lot of times you gain some really cool things. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful. I want to be uh, respectful of your time and start to wrap up here. Um, 
and yeah, just to do so, I have a, a one really, really important question for you. Uh, maybe two, but the first one's probably most important. And that is, what is your relationship with Spider-Man? <laughs> you know, I, uh, I really admire some particular personality traits from the uh, Spider-Man character. Uh, he is a superhero that uh, wasn't born that way. He experienced that as a transition. And that transition is something that could have, you know, transformed his life into something profoundly negative. But he took that challenge and developed it into uh, to strengths and lessons that he learned from that. Mm. You know, for, for me, I really uh, have a lot of respect for the idea of the character uh, and you know, overcoming things with, uh, honestly, the, the personality of the character is, is mm. what comes through that. Things to shoot for, I guess, for, for myself personally. He's a strong character, but at the same time, extremely humble and relatable. Mm -hmm. I, I try to... Mentor, uh, role model. Yeah. Worthwhile life goals. Let's say that. Do you have a particular favorite uh, iteration or uh, depiction? <sighs> you know what? I have seen value in just about all of the uh, the iterations, honestly. Nice. I gotta oh, disclose yeah. that uh, I too am a huge fan of Spider Man. It's probably probably my favorite superhero. I uh, should have worn the shirt today, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, reserved the Spider Man shirt for uh, going to my uh, uh, CT scans and some chemotherapy days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good the, super uh, suit to have. Gives the nurses uh, a bit of a kick to see you come in in a Spider-Man costume. You know, they, they still stab you, but, you know, at least they're nice. <laughs> nice. Um, I guess the last question I would like to ask you um, is just if you had a platform or a means to speak directly into the home of every Canadian, if you've given any thought to my, what you might want to say to them. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Boy, there's a lot, but to keep it really simple, um, I have been able to open up my mind to, uh, to things like psychedelics for psychotherapy. And I have found that opening up to, to things like that, that I had previously been very close to has been something that has enhanced the quality of my life very greatly and if everybody could maybe just be introspective enough to look at something in their own lives that perhaps they have been close to and maybe revisit it with a, a fresh set of eyes to see if maybe there might be some value or lessons to be gleaned from that then i think there would be a, an awfully good benefit to be had from that hmm. a beautiful invitation thank you so much for taking the time out of this conversation it's been a real honor it has been a blast hopefully i haven't uh, freaked your uh, listeners out too much with my crazy ideas mm -hmm. well talk to you soon